Well, good evening, everyone. Um, my name's Rod, and if I haven't met you, I look forward to meeting you over uh, supper afterwards, or dinner. We're going to be looking through this passage that Joel's just read, and um, this is the second week into Luke 6. So let me pray for us and ask that God will help us. It's a fairly confronting passage, actually, that um, says some hard things to us. So let's pray that God will really help us as we grapple with it uh, tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We acknowledge that it is powerful, that it judges even the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And Lord, we ask this evening that you might challenge us afresh, that you might encourage us where needed, that we might see more clearly the values of your kingdom and desire to live in the light of them. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we learn things in an unexpected way, in a, in a new environment where we're not expecting perhaps to come across things. Um, sometimes the things we learn seem counterintuitive in the way that we're hearing them. Um, as many of you know, I've come back from a recent short-term mission trip to Bangladesh uh, that our church sent, and a number of things struck me as I was over there that I've been reflecting on since I've come back. I guess one thing that really struck me over there was the generosity of the people. I guess I expected to learn lots of things about their culture and to be challenged in different ways, and that certainly happened. But it was on things that I felt I already knew something about, where I was shocked as I observed the locals and their attitudes and actions in ways that really hit me freshly. Um, so on the issue of generosity, um, you don't have to be wealthy, clearly, to be very generous. And I found that over and over there, that the people there, the believers, were just so sacrificially generous. They would give you the shirt off their back, and yet they had so little. And I was just humbled time and time again, thinking about all the things we have in Australia and how we tend to hold on to them so much more tightly. And then there was the related issue of contentment. You know, as I looked at most of the people around there, they had every reason to be discontent in terms of Australian uh, standards. We would look at what they had to live with and feel concerned for them and think, ah, oh, they must be so frustrated. And yet I found over and over this this happiness, this joy, this contentment in the Lord in what they'd given and what God was going to dish out day by day. I think never more starkly than the Moakley slum girls who there they were with very little, often only having one good meal a day, coming along to this school where the teacher didn't even have a blackboard, let alone much more. And just the joy in their faces as they sung songs about Jesus, as they learned to read and write, as they expressed their trust in God against all manner of difficult circumstances in their families. And I guess the thing that also flowed out of that, and that was the third and final thing that really struck me, was just their trust in God as a result. You know, in the midst of all of that, they had this great trust that when there was so much to be anxious about, so much to be worried about, um, there was none of that. They seemed to be so trusting in God through everything that would unfold each day. I found myself ashamed at different times because of the minimal things that I was worrying about as part of the trip and things that were taking up my mind and space when I saw the great challenges that they had before them. Uh, it's pretty simple to say that there are far greater challenges for brothers and sisters in Christ in a place like Bangladesh than there ever is for us here. And to see them over and over again just express their trust in God and his provision uh, was just a wonderful thing to see. 
But it just all seemed a bit backwards at the time uh, to feel the weight of these truths in a, in a place where uh, I didn't expect to be confronted like that. It was all the more moving, but it was also a really good, helpful correction for me. Well, there's something of that as we come to Luke 6 tonight, as we look at Christ's words here, because we see that his kingdom is very upside down. Uh, he values, he affirms things that are just so unexpected. His message seems so countercultural, just so unlikely. And I think the question that I want us to reflect on tonight is why is Jesus' teaching so unexpected? I think as we hear a passage like this read, it strikes us as shocking almost the things that he says. Here's this large crowd of disciples and others streaming out to hear him, and yet he's turning conventional wisdom on its head. Why is his teaching so unexpected for us? Well, to answer that tonight, I've got three points. And the first answer to that question is this, because the teacher that we're hearing from is unique, because he is unique. Notice again, verses 17 to 19. Luke records, he went down with them and stood on a level place and a large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem, from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out of him and healing them all. I don't know, when you hear the word teacher, what do you think of? Uh, if you think back to your experiences at school, maybe your current experiences at university, uh, have you ever had a teacher like this um, that appeared and you know, thousands of people were pouring out to see them? And more than that, not only were they speaking with authority, but power was flowing out of them and people were being healed left, right and centre. There's something unique about this setting and what Jesus is doing here as people come to him. And yet there's a harking back to something that had happened in the Old Testament. There are some big parallels in this passage with Moses and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. I mean, here is Jesus. We saw last week he'd been up on a mountain. He'd appointed his 12 apostles. He comes down off the mountain now. And that's why this passage is often called the Sermon on the Plain. He comes to this level place and he addresses the people. Well, Moses, of course, had been up on Mount Sinai, had received the commands from God. He came down the mountain and he delivered them to the people. And so there are some parallels. Certainly Jesus is not replacing the Old Testament law here, but there are new commands that he's going to give in this extended section of teaching. We're going to see next week and the week after that he has new commands like love your enemies, which would have been really confronting as they are for us today for the first hearers too. And so there are some big parallels uh, with the explanation and provision of God's word through Moses and the prophets that followed in the Old Testament. There's also some sharp discontinuity here as well. There's some big differences. I mean, Jesus is not just speaking to God's people, the Israelites. You might have noticed as we read uh, verses 17 to 19 that there is uh, a vast majority of them are Jews. Uh, there are his disciples who are really keen uh, to hear what he's teaching. There are many people, it seems, that have been flowing out from the capital city, Jerusalem. Many from the whole province of Judea, which was the whole southern half of Israel, have flown, you know, poured out to see Jesus as he teaches. But did you notice there was those two city-states that were spoken about, Tyre and Sidon? They're northwest uh, of Israel, along the Mediterranean coast. These were big Gentile areas. 
Gentiles who would know very little about the Old Testament, understand perhaps little about Jesus, but clearly they'd heard about him and they wanted to come too, perhaps because of the many miracles that were taking place and the healing that was there. So there's a big difference there uh, to the Old Testament prophets who just spoke to the people of God largely. But there's another major difference here in that Christ's teaching is accompanied by all of this healing. Um, God certainly did miracles through Moses and through many of the Old Testament prophets. But there's something unique, as I mentioned before, in Christ's work here. And you see this over and over in the Gospels. Jesus not only wants to teach with authority, but he's also healing and demonstrating that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah, not only by what he says, by what he does. And so this was just so different. If you think about, put yourself in the shoes of a Jew in the first century and you would go to the synagogue on a Saturday and you would hear the teachers of the law of the Pharisees and they would open a scroll, say from Isaiah, like we read about in Luke 4 last year, and they would explain the text. But nothing like this. Is it any surprise that time after time when crowds came and flocked to Jesus, they said, we've never heard teaching like this. This man speaks with authority. This is so different. And of course, the authority, it was um, reinforced by the healings that were taking place, the miraculous events that surrounded him. We see here he has authority over disease. He has authority over the spiritual realm as well. And so no doubt many wanted to come and see him and hear him speak. Why is Jesus teaching so unexpected? Well, firstly, the teacher is just unique. This is the promised Christ, the Messiah. Here is the son of God amongst them. Of course it is different and it comes across so uniquely to the people. That brings us to a second answer to the question. If we're to ask why is Jesus teaching so unexpected in this section? Secondly, we've got to say because he calls blessed those who seem cursed in the world's eyes. He calls blessed those who seem cursed. Notice again verses 20 to 23. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Wow. Now, in verse 20, uh, we need to take in something of the context. How we understand what Jesus is teaching here. Who is he addressing it to? What's the gist of what he's going to explain here to the people? There's two phrases in verse 20 that really helps us. Uh, The opening phrase, um, Jesus looked at his disciples. It tells us that his focus in the foreground is the teaching of those who are already following him. His followers, his disciples, those who are already trusting that he is the Lord. And it's reinforced by the phrase at the end of the sentence, God's kingdom. And what we're seeing here is this is teaching about God's kingdom, about the values of God's kingdom. This is not how somebody might enter God's kingdom. This is not 10 things to do so that you might be saved. This is a person who has trusted in Jesus, who is following him as their Lord and Master. How are they to live? What are their values now that they're following this one? And so as we think about the kingdom of God, it's an important phrase 
to get our mind around. Um, so often we think in terms of a geographical area, don't we? The nation of Australia, and so it has its boundaries. But when we talk about God's kingdom, there are no boundaries. God's reign or rule is what we're talking about, and it extends all over the earth wherever his people submit to the leadership of his son as they read his word and obey it. God's kingdom was being ushered in at this point through Jesus' ministry, and it would be fully brought in at his death and resurrection in about two years' time from this point in Luke's gospel. But of course, that kingdom of God would only be fully consummated, would only be seen in its full glory when Christ returned and took those who are his to be with him in heaven, when God's kingdom would be seen in all its power and fullness. And so we need to understand that background as we come and think about this teaching about the values of the kingdom of God. See, if you've placed your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're already a citizen of God's kingdom. And so the question that you need to have as you come to this passage is how am I to live as a citizen in Christ's kingdom? How am I to follow him as my king truly? How do I live out what is important to him while I await his return? But I guess as Jesus starts to outline his values here in verses 21 to 23, we see that the conventional wisdom is all turned around. Notice that Christ states those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are mourning, those who are being insulted and hated, they're the ones who are blessed. I mean, on face value, that's, that's not what we expect. How can poverty and persecution equate with blessing? We have to think a bit more deeply about that word to be blessed as a result and then to think how that could be so. So firstly, uh, this word blessed, um, this section in um, Luke's gospel also has, I guess, a parallel in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. It's often called the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes is just the Latin name for blessed, this key word through the passage here. But I think when we hear the word blessed in our society today, um, we'll hear people use it in a sentence that means that everything is going well. So they'll say, oh, that person's really blessed, by which they mean they have a great job, they're being paid a lot of money, or they've got a fancy house, or they're, they're wealthy. Everything's going well for them. They're blessed because, you know, they've got everything. Or sometimes we'll hear people use it in a relational sense, but with a similar outcome. So they'll say, oh, well, that person's really blessed in their relationships. They've got a great marriage, or they've got wonderful kids, or they've got successful kids, however they want to define that. And so we hear that word and we think about it as having lots of things, everything coming together. To be blessed is simply to be happy because you've got everything. And that's why we're so shocked when we read Christ's words here, because he's saying the opposite. But Jesus is using the word blessed in a more spiritual sense. It's got not to do with having lots of things, but rather a person who is approved by God. Somebody who will be honoured by God one day, who is living now as a citizen of his kingdom, who values what is most important to God. They are following the teaching example of their King Jesus, and the result is they will be rewarded. And so the list of hard things that Jesus outlines here are things for his followers to endure because they know that they have something far greater that is coming. We look at such a list, or certainly our world does, and suggest that somebody who is experiencing these things is not blessed. 
They're cursed. You know, these are all difficult things. And unlike Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, where the struggles are often listed in spiritual terms, talks about those who are poor in spirit or those who hunger for righteousness, Luke does no such thing here. Luke's passage is clearly focused on physical needs. He's talking about those who are literally poor, literally hungry, who mourn. And Jesus is not saying that enduring poverty is a wonderful thing, a great blessing, or that those who are starving are having fun. Not at all. But what he's saying is that those who endure such things for his sake will be blessed in heaven. That a great reward awaits them. They are suffering now, they're despised now, but they'll be blessed in the life to come. They'll be honoured later. Notice that it makes it clear that it's about relationship with him that's important as we hear these difficult things. Notice that being hated, excluded, insulted, rejected, it only results in blessing if it's because of our faithfulness to the Son of Man, that is Christ. And that persecution can be counted as joy because of the glory that is to come. We follow the pattern of our Saviour. Think about Jesus' life as he lived on earth. He suffered many things and, of course, eventually was crucified as a result of the opposition of sinful people towards him. We call him the suffering servant in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. His experience was one of suffering in this life on earth and then glory that follows. And the same is true of us. We will have the same pattern if we're clearly his followers. You can't follow the suffering servant and not experience difficulty yourself. Elsewhere in scripture, we're told that if we're serious about following Jesus, persecution will follow. And so we, what we need to hear here is the necessity to follow the pattern that our Savior follows. Knowing that something far greater comes in the eternal rewards, that this life is not all that we're living for, that we're looking forward to something far, far better. Let me illustrate this by returning to the recent trip to Bangladesh that I spoke about before. I think when I was in Bangladesh, what I saw was people who literally experienced these things. The believers there face all of these daily. They're literally poor. And they often struggle to have a job because those who are in the majority religion find no problem in discriminating against the Christians who are a small minority and refusing to give them opportunities to get work. And so often they're struggling to get work. They're struggling to afford anything, to look after their families. And those who live in the slum areas, in Milwaukee, for example, well, they're literally hungry every day. They're lucky to have one good meal, and that meal is rice and a few vegetables with it. And they see people all the time mourning the loss of loved ones who couldn't access health care because they didn't have the money to do so. People who died, their lives cut short unnecessarily, would not have happened in an Australian context. And in terms of persecution, it's actually a daily threat. They're thinking about that so often. Um, James here, Pastor James, is the head of the house church of Bangladesh. And I've got to tell you that he faces a lot of difficulty. He's been called into the local police station a couple of times in the last two years. And the police have said to him, you've got to realise, you must know already that you're on hit lists and we can't protect you. If you keep going around sharing the message of Jesus, what you're going to need to do is this. You need to put CCTV on your house. You need to put it on your church. You need to post security outside. We're not going to be there when something goes wrong. You need protection. 
And you know, when James walks away from meetings like that, he says, I'm not going to be made fearful by these people. I'm not going to be cowed into a corner. I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. Now he carries a literal big physical cross through the streets in Easter and Christmas, goes out with the number of people from his church and fearlessly proclaims the gospel. He hands out tracts throughout the city of Dhaka. He'll go into the large mosques in the center of the city and share Jesus with those that are hanging around. He's a fearless guy. I saw a lot of courage in James. And I felt that, well, perhaps it's all right for James. He understands what he's doing. He's counted the cost. He knows what he's in for. But what about his family? He's married. He has three children. How do they think about all of this? I was eager to ask that question of his wife, Sheila. And eventually we had time to do that. We stayed a couple of nights at their house. And I asked Sheila about all of this. And she said, I'm unconcerned for James. We're here to serve. We're here to share the gospel. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. I'm 100% behind him. You have to understand that James is bulletproof until God wants him home. (laughs) Yes, he is. Now look, as we apply this teaching of Jesus to ourselves, we too have to hold firm to the promises of Christ. They do it in far more difficult circumstances in that nation. Let me read to you from Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4 that we might have our mindset rightly oriented. The Apostle Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I want to ask you the question tonight. Do you have that single-minded focus on the future? I think we've got to recapture the truth that this world is not where our heart should be. Perhaps the world that our Bangladeshi brothers and sisters in Christ inhabit is just so remote and different to us here, you feel like you can't relate to it. Perhaps it makes you think even that, look, they long for heaven, they think about their eternal reward because life now is so tough that you know they have to look forward with hope to the future. But we've got it so good here that, well, we really don't have a heavenly focus. Well, it doesn't sound good if we put it that way, does it? You know, our society today is so rich that we often put down roots. You know, we've traded the sweet by and by for the prosperous here and now. And in this era of instant gratification, where it's always the buzz of the new technology or the interactive entertainment or the overseas holiday or all of these things, we get so distracted and lost in things that we know are secondary to God's kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong, none of those things are evil in and of themselves. But they often prove to be such a distraction for us that we lose sight of our eternal inheritance. When things are going well in Australia, we become content in the joys of this life. And somehow heaven loses its shine. How can heaven lose its shine? Our life's destination, if we're in Christ, is with him. 
It's to be with God's people. To give praise and service to God 24-7 in a place freed from sin. It should be the greatest joy in our mind. And if you think, no, no, look, I'm, I'm focused on the future. I'm, I'm not all in the here and now. Well, let me ask you then. You tell me the last time you sat down and thought about heaven for one hour at a time. And then you tell me how much you've thought about what's going to happen tomorrow or your holiday in six months or whatever it might be. And you tell me where your home is. Look, few of us know what it is to be truly poor and hungry like the Bangladeshis do. Um, but we can certainly experience some of the things in Christ's list. list. Uh, you know, a lot of us will know plenty about suffering. I know some people in this room have been through a lot of stuff. Uh, we know what it is to mourn. We know what it is to weep. We've seen at times how much it means to follow Jesus. You know, we've had to count the cost. Maybe you're counting the cost at the moment. Uh, you're in a situation at work where your work colleagues are making it really tough for you. They know you're a Christian. They don't want to hear you talk about it. In fact, they're going to do whatever they can to pull you down. But they're watching you like a hawk, so any slightest mistake you make or any word that seems out of place, they're onto it. Maybe it's even closer to home than that. It's family or friends, and some of them don't share your faith in the Lord Jesus, and they've made it their mission to make it tough on you. Well, you need to hear the encouragement that Jesus has got. And he wants to say, great is your reward in heaven. And so the result should be that you endure now. You know that this is not it. That there is so much more to come. And so we've got to be reminded that our mourning will turn to laughter. That the persecution that we experience, as little as it might be compared to some other countries, is going to issue in blessing. It's going to issue in great reward in God's presence. And so we have to keep serving our God now. We have to value what he values we need to be about his kingdom, not about these earthly kingdoms that we're so often drawn into. Look, even the most uh, famous people struggle with these things. Billy Graham died this week at the age of 99. He was a faithful guy. Lots of people tried to trip him up <laughs> decade after decade. And he had his flaws. We all do. But we can say of the man that he was faithful to the end. There's no... Big scandals about his life. He never turned away from his faith. He just kept going. But even people like that find it really tough at times. Let me tell you about Charles Spurgeon. He's arguably the most famous Baptist pastor ever. 19th century in London. Um, served for like 50 years there. Had a huge impact on the city. Saw many people come to faith. I don't know if you realize when Spurgeon started his ministry, I think as a 19-year-old, he suffered a firestorm of criticism that began about his ministry in London. Everybody was having a go at him. The local papers in London just had great delight in just writing stuff about criticizing him, trashing his sermons, creating pamphlets that denounced his methods and motives, even his mannerisms. They attacked him with cartoons and caricatures about him. Several writers even questioned if he was even converted. Now... Spurgeon found that really difficult to start with. Uh, he said to his wife, oh, this stuff's breaking me. 
I'm broken in agony about all this. And she prayed about it and she created a big plaque, Matthew 5, 11, 12. Stuck it in the wall of their room that it would be the first thing that Charles saw every day. It's the same words from our passage in Luke 6 almost. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Well, Spurgeon uh, grew tough skin as time went on. He let things wash over him. And those words did their work from the Lord. Uh, He took insults in their stride. He had a long and faithful ministry as a result, even as he battled depression. God is at work through his people, even in the toughest things. And the thing that will keep them going onwards is what is to come. It is the hope that we have that spurs us in the present, that helps us endure, that helps us keep serving his kingdom and not being distracted off to some other that brings me to a third and final answer. A third answer to our question of why is Jesus' teaching so unexpected in this section? It's not only because he flips things in the first half and calls people who we would think is cursed, blessed, but in the final bit from verses 24 to 26, he cries woe to those who seem blessed. Have a look again. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich. For you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. (laughs) Now, as we read this list of woes, again, it's such a reversal of the world's values, isn't it? It seems like a list of advantages. Being rich and comfortable, being well-fed, laughing all the time, enjoying life, not having to weep or mourn, having everyone speak highly of you, think you're great. Man, this has got to be the list that every Australian lives for. It's like Jesus is criticizing open slather, our community. What the world thinks is desirable, Jesus condemns. Of course, we tend to see ourselves in the best light most of the time. And I think we tend to see our society in the best light too. We, we put on our rose-coloured glasses and we view things in a way that makes it seem a bit better than it is, but perhaps we miss the flaws that are deep down that we need to see. Now, one of the leading social commentators and authors in Australia is Hugh Mackay. And he offered this summary of Australian culture on Australia Day a few years ago of how we see ourselves and how others might see us he put it this way we might wish others to praise our tolerance our harmonious and egalitarian society our willingness to help each other out in a crisis our fighting qualities our resourcefulness our rule of law our stable institutions but national stereotypes are rarely that kind We might find rather that we're being caricatured for our racism, for our triumphalism, our copying of the United States, the chip on our shoulder, the tall poppy syndrome, our harsh treatment of refugees, and yes, our ugly reputation on the sporting field of sledging. The truth is, the truth about all human societies, we're a complex and self-contradictory mixture of all these factors, attractive, 
and unattractive. The arsonists who light bushfires are Australians just as much a part of us as the firefighters who risk their lives to put them out. We value volunteers and our country teams with volunteers who do everything from raising money for hospitals to foster parenting troubled kids to working on age uh, working on aid projects, but it also teams our country with self-absorbed prats who wouldn't recognise a charitable act if it hit them in the heart. Fair summary? I don't know. It hurts the first time. You know, in the end, it doesn't matter what Humakai thinks or what anybody thinks. It doesn't really matter what we think about the person beside us or even how we view ourselves. But what does matter is how God views you. It's the only thing that matters. Jesus doesn't just write an opinion piece and a column in the Herald and say, well, I'll take it or leave it, but this is what I think about person X. No, he's the judge of the universe and one day every person will stand before him and his judgment will count. And he says, woe to the things that our world sticks on a pedestal. What matters is that we actually come in line with God's kingdom values, that we start loving the things that he loves and that we might start seeing the things that he can't stand for what they are. And that's going to require a change in our affections. I don't love the things that God loves most of the time. I don't know about you. I can only speak for myself. But I find myself being drawn into loving the things that the world around me loves, that they've got lots of time for. And so I, when I read passages like 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17, I'm knocked over. John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. I think sometimes uh, when we come to such a passage, if we're feeling better about ourselves or our world, mistakenly so. We, we, we read a passage like that and think it's life-negating. It's so negative that it's just criticizing. But aren't there so many good things in the world, God? Well, yes, he knows. He created the place. But as John writes here, the, world, the word world is representative of everything that stands opposed to God and his plans. And so as we read a passage like that, we need to understand that that's how... God sees the forces within our world. And we need to take it not as something that's negative, but as a realistic warning that tells us that our weak hearts so often go after the wrong things. We go after the things of this world when we know it's going to end if we're a believer, when they're things that they're completely the opposite of Christ's kingdom. So I want to apply this now. How can we make ourselves love what God loves? Well, his voice in our ears has to be the loudest. It has to be the thing that's screaming at us moment by moment because there is so much to drown out around us. Our world is constantly feeding us with trivia. I was chatting 
with James Powell this afternoon, with Matt and with Joel. And he said at the end, isn't social media an exercise in vanity? (laughs) Well, here is a man who's had to focus on what's most important. And I couldn't help but agree. But if we're going to love what God loves, then how are we going to hear his voice? Surely we have to be reading his word more than we're doing anything else. How can I ask for his help? Because I know I'm in such a battle and I'm hearing so many other voices all the time. If I don't pray, I need to be praying constantly about this because my heart keeps being drawn away to worldly things. I have to keep reading and praying and filling my mind with his desires rather than the world's ones. And I have to keep asking myself questions about how do I assess this rightly? How do I know what I'm truly loving? And I think one question to assess that is this. What if you were asked to give up X or Y or Z tomorrow? Something that you've placed a lot of your energy and time in of late. Something that's not really at the heart of God's kingdom or what you could be doing as someone that's following him. Would you be able to give it up? Or is your first reaction to something like that is, no, that's so important to me. I love that. Well, there's your heart. See, maybe one of those things you love is the approval, the encouragement, the good name amongst non-Christian friends and family. Not that they acknowledge that you're somebody who seeks to live for Jesus, but that you are so determined that you'd have their approval that you just do whatever they do. Maybe it's the material comforts of this world that you're on this treadmill that we keep creating for ourselves. I've got to get that good degree at uni so that I can get that good job, so that I can earn lots of money, so that I can have that big house, so that I can sit down and retire. And, and why am I doing these things? Where is my focus in all of that? Or is it some search for experiences? You know, if I could just have that experience, then that would bring me joy. I'll feel really fulfilled if I get to do this in the next two years. Whatever this might be. Well, that's my paraphrase of Jesus' woes. (laughs) And my concern is that they're the kind of things that can track through my brain often. And I think they're the things that come across our mind because we've become complacent in our self-sufficiency. And we need to keep being reminded of the outcome of such an independent way of life where God is really out on the fringes and I'm at the center. I've got to be called to turn back, to come back to God's values, that I'm here for his kingdom, not my own kingdom. There's a poem that expresses this, written by a Christian some decades ago, which I think captures this urgent need for us to refocus really well. The writer says, I I looked upon my soul one day to find it too had grown with thorns and nettles everywhere, the seeds neglected sown. The years had passed while I had cared for things of lesser worth, the things of heaven I let go while minding things of earth. And to Christ I turned with bitter tears and cried, O Lord, forgive, I have not much time left for thee, not many years to live. 
The wasted years forever gone. The days I can't recall. But if I could live those days again, I'd make him Lord of all. See, I think this passage in Luke 6 is doing two things for us. In the first half of the blessings, Jesus is saying, be encouraged. (laughs) If you're feeling downtrodden, if you're feeling like you're just enduring, you're surviving rather than thriving, then hear again the great hope that you have if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, that he has laid down his life for your sin, has won you forgiveness and has set you on a new path, included you in his kingdom. And there is great reward to come. So keep persevering now. Understand that the hard things are just a small momentary time before the great eternal reward that is to follow. But the second half of Jesus' talk of woes is a strong rebuke to us. It's a warning. It's a warning that we don't want to give ourselves over to the worldly values that are not Christ's kingdom values. Jesus is not spoon-feeding you the same nonsense that the world is feeding you day after day. In fact, he's yelling, he's screaming the opposite. Don't go that way. And that's because he's unique. He's the son of man. He is God in the flesh that's come to take us to something new, something different. And so he cries woe to those who we think are blessed. To those who have it all, he says, watch out. To those who have so little, he says, If you're focused on me, there is great things to come. Let's hear Jesus' words. Let's realize that as we follow the pattern of our Savior, it will be suffering and difficulty now, but it is glory to come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus speaks to us in a way that is so challenging especially in a place like Wollongong at this time. We want to acknowledge that uh, so often we find ourselves being aligned with the world's values and not with yours, and that to our shame. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to respond rightly to the unexpected teaching of Christ, the one who is truly Lord, who calls us to give up on our own small schemes and to come follow him. Help us this week to do do so. We know that we're weak, that we need your help. Strengthen us by your spirit to truly live for Christ, to live for his kingdom and none other. In his name we pray.